Hello and welcome to the Endicott Podcast. I'm your host, Annie Mae Taylor, and we're back to preview this weekend's Canadian Grand Prix. Just the one co-host with me this evening, the ever-chaotic and probably again sunburnt Jesse Billington. How are you? Not sunburnt, which is impressive. It was very nice sunny days a couple of past few days over here in Wales. And uh, yeah, not been not been too shabby. Nice time away with some friends from uni and just relaxing and enjoying. So all good on my end. How are things for you? Good, thank you. Went to, well, same as you, went to London Concourse, but I went on the Thursday, met Vicky Butler Henderson, who I just have a huge girl crush on. She is amazing, and she has the same love that I do for the little Renault 5 Turbo. So She's just a, a good lass all round, really, a top-tier reg. She's just a nice she person. Is. We love she we love Vicky Butler Henderson. We haven't had her on. We should try and get her on the podcast, or at least do an interview with her at some point. Mm. Because she loves well, yeah, she loves the Renault. She's a big lover of Porsches as well, isn't she? Yeah, I can't remember if she's got a GT3. If she is like her like ultimate car is would be to have a 911 GT3. I can't remember, but yeah, she she does love. She's a she's just an all round top tier person. She is. She's amazing. Anyway, looking forward to this weekend. Well, just before that, in uh, what the hell has happened is, uh, well, Le Mans, Jesse. Yeah, Le Mans, Forza Ferrari. Ferrari win Le Mans. And uh, this lifts Ellie May's merch curse. She recently picked up some Ferrari merch and it hasn't negatively impacted the Ferrari racing team. It's in a nice red bag as well. Oh, so fancy. Look how fancy it is. Where'd you get it from? I mean, Did you I go went... into like a shop to actually buy it? No. So I That's bought it, it from to you? Ferrari, the Ferrari store itself. Mm. And it came in this, so I'll kind of describe it, this big sort of nice red bag with an embellished uh, prancing horse on the on both sides of a sort of Ferrari sticker. And then it was, my Ferrari hat was then sort of covered in a Ferrari uh, tissue paper and uh, again a big sort of prancing horse and Benish ticker it's very fancy very fancy indeed and it doesn't seem to have negatively impacted their Le Mans team or their endurance racing team too badly of course Ferrari's number one car stormed home to a strong win over an ailing Toyota uh, this year's Centennial race was not just one of celebration but one of attrition with cars of all classes suffering in the changing conditions continued wet spells or hampered running that favoured the wingless Peugeots but as the circuit to Lasarth dried out the 499P came back to the fore as the class's strongest runner. The Porsches suffered a torrid time with crashes and a lack of pace to compete with the Italian and Japanese outfits, while the Cadillac teams also flagged somewhat but came across the night line in formation, which is quite nice. Crucially, though, if you look back at all the drivers from Alfa Romeo Sauber's F1 lineup since 2018 through to about 2021, you have an F1 world champion in Kimi Raikkonen, an Indy 500 winner in Marcus Ericsson, a Le Mans 24-hour winner in Giovinazzi, and then Charles Leclerc. I'm going to skip that bit about Charles Leclerc and just move on. Sad times for Charles Leclerc. Yeah, sad times for Charles Leclerc. He was there at Le Mans Mm. to see them win. Uh, Obviously, Ferrari have come back after a 50-year hiatus away from Le Mans with their last win being in 1965, just before Ford dominated the remainder of the 60s. And they've gone and won the Centurion race for Le Mans. This is Everyone's going to remember that. 
the conditions weren't easy. It rained. It hadn't rained since I think the 11th of May, so about a month. So the track was incredibly dirty. And then when the rain did come down, it would sit on the track rather than soaking in because everything was so dry. And it even caught the winners out. They was, got stuck in the gravel and had to be lifted out via a crane. So it wasn't easy conditions to win. But the race between sort of Ferrari and Toyota was tight. It was about a 12-second gap, which in single-seater terms, apparently that's about a second and a half. So mm. it was incredibly tight. But with about two, one and a half hours to go, Toyota changed their driver lineup from Brenda Hartley to... Hirakawa, is that how you say his name? I think that's how you pronounce his name, yeah. And Hartley said to him, mind the rear brakes because they're susceptible to locking. And Hirakawa was really pushing because Ferrari had them really on outright pace. And he ended up locking the rear brakes because he braked sort of too late going into the corner. And it sort of as he braked, he went over a little bump, which caused it, everything to be sort of a bit unstable, locked up, and he crashed the car so we had to do an extra pit stop to replace damaged parts and that really put them out of contention for the win and even when Ferrari had to go through a second power cycle to get the car going again after they pitted and they lost about a minute they couldn't catch up to the Ferraris at all it was sort of race over for them. Mm. I mean, credit for that Ferrari team has to go to the drivers. Obviously, we've mentioned Giovinazzi in there, who put in some long stints through the sort of dark hours as well. Just able to really just keep plugging out pretty consistent pace with a good amount of care. Same for uh, Brit driver James Calado. That was really nice if you noticed on their caps. Giovinazzi and Alejandro Pierguidi had the sort of standard Ferrari cap but with the Italian tricolore under the brim. And James Calado's had the Union flag under the brim, which I thought was quite a nice touch. Um, but crucially, Alessandro Pierguidi, his pace in that final stint was phenomenal. No, they came in, had a slightly iffy pit stop, came out ahead of the Toyota, and then just flew. He got the hammer down, and that car was on form. And it was ripping past other hypercars, LMP2s, Everything else looked like it was going backwards compared to Pierre Guidi and the 499P. It was spectacular and truly one of the greatest racing moments we're going to see this season. That and I'd argue so far the last lap of the Indy 500 are going to be remembered as 2023's greatest motorsport moments for certain. So yeah, absolutely fantastic stuff. I mean, the racing action wasn't confined purely to the hypercars. In LMP2, the battle raged for the full 24 hours. It was really tightly fought all the way through in the second tier. And um, the competition eventually saw the number 34 inter-Europol car come home to take a win. And I believe this is the first win for a Polish entry into the series as well. So really nice to see that. As well as Fabio Scherer, one of the drivers, had his foot run over in the pit lane early on in the race, but continued to pull driving stints despite having a suspected broken foot. I haven't checked to see if there's been an update on his condition. But yeah, worth it to come through for that win. And again, it shows the dedication and love that these drivers have for the sport and what they're entering in and the, the kudos that Le Mans is worth. Yeah, I haven't actually checked to see whether it is broken or not. I imagine it is. I think it was um, the Chevrolet NASCAR that actually, <laughs> so out the, of all of them, the heaviest one. Yeah, the I'm big, beefy boy. Yeah, if it was the, that's the one, if you're going to have your foot run over, you don't want it by that one. Yeah, you want to go um, for the really light ones. Yes. 
Um, and it was really early on, too, when he got his foot run over. And whenever you would see him then go do a driver change, he would be hopping to the car because he couldn't actually stand on it. But fortunately, it was his braking foot. And the LMP2 cars require you to be quite soft on the brakes. Otherwise, you sort of um, sort of unbalance the downfalls quite a bit on the car. So that's how he was able to sort of continue driving. I think if he was in a different category, it might have been different for him. But still, yeah. kudos to him. If he'd been in a different category, you'd really want it to be your throttle foot that's broken because you could really sort of be quite gentle on the throttle, great for fuel saving. But most motorsport series have a really firm brake pedal. So even then, he'll be trying to sort of keep the ball of his foot off and putting a lot of the load through like the heel of his foot. You lose the ability to be fine and precise if you're trying to do that. You're sort of changing the way your feet rest on pedals, something that you'll become really atoned to as a racing driver. All of a sudden, you're shifting that on the fly fighting through pain while trying to do that in the middle of the night in the pouring rain that's an achievement and yeah you saw him sort of hopping out of the car at the end of the stint and going hugging i think it was his partner on the fence line and the relief was enormous and yeah we, we just love to see it we love to see racing drivers at their peak coming through and just demonstrating what makes racing so good we love it uh gt class it was pretty strong pretty i would say underrated or quiet but relatively quiet especially given the tension there was in the hypercar class it was easy to sort of overlook the gt class but it was a strong win for the number 33 corvette racing outfit there i don't know if you've got anything else to add to it um no not really i just want to say i think we and dames did pretty well as well i mean they were leading at one point but they didn't really have enough power to contest for a podium spot in the end but they got fourth which i think is still pretty good going you know and all, the only all-female drivers in in sort of the whole Le Mans, which what there were 50 50 cars there yeah there's so what? a huge amount of entries into it and yeah only team that's all female there's a one other female driver on the field one or two but yes. it's not huge no and i her did her car go out early not as early as jack aiken mm. <laughs> you bless him did not have a good time he was racing for cadillac wasn't he yeah yeah unfortunate for jack aiken but again, the Cadillacs are pretty good, but those conditions were enough to catch anyone out. It was horrendous. Crucially, though, Lightning McQueen, sorry, the Garage 56 Chevrolet NASCAR stock car entry came in 39th overall with lap times that shamed the more advanced GT cars and through the night utilized its strong outright pace to harry even the LMPs and hypercars down the straights. It was simply incredible. And there's reports of people at the race circuit going, I haven't been able to sleep. I've been able to enjoy the entire full 24 hours because every time I go to sleep, every four and a half minutes, a giant V8 alarm clock goes off as it just comes herring past. You're going, whoa. And then you go, right, I'll try and go back to sleep. And then it comes again. You're going, no, I give up. I'll just stay up and watch the NASCAR just absolutely pounding round. And yeah, credit to Jimmy Johnson, Mike Rockefeller and Jensen Button for pulling off that one. That cannot have been an easy drive. They're not easy cars to try and wheel about on ovals, let alone on sort of proper circuits. I was speaking to Ben Collins about this and everyone always underestimates the technical ability you need to drive a NASCAR. And obviously to have one that's been sort of thrown together and cobbled together to the point that it can do gt racing is really quite something it sort of suffered a bit of a gearbox issue because i know they slapped in a sequential transmission just to try and make it a bit more tolerable otherwise i think they have 
top load of four speeds. So you're literally in standard NASCARs banging an original sort of gear lever. But yeah, this was sequential box, suffered a bit of a failure, but otherwise just you gotta love it. Uh, every time it came up on the screen, I just I loved watching it. And I sort of love sort of the little story behind it in the fact that wasn't it sort of meant to start Le Mans sort of at the back and then they realized uh, this car's actually quite quick. And so they're like, maybe we'll put it in front of the GTs. And then it was sort of competing with the LMP2s. And they're like, oh, okay. There's this is all- actually a very quick car. They allowed it to run in qualifying despite being the only thing in its class. Class. So what they did was they sort of sent out in qualifying. So it's one lap pace was really good. And they said, yep, well, your cl- we'll just sort of order everything by class-wise. So it means you start at the back. And then they thought, well, hang on. It's going to take off in an absolute monster pretty much all the GT cars in three laps. Equally, it's bad conditions, and that's going to be dangerous. So what we'll do is we'll put it roughly where its pace would put it, so ahead of the GTs behind the LMP2s. So it just sets off and starts chasing the LMP2s. And thinking, ah, oh, I'd love to see this sort of thing enacted again with a broader array of different motorsport cars go down the full cars 2 route the sort of world grand prix series and have an f1 car in there you might want to go for a slightly older one a slightly more rugged one something from sort of the old dfvv8s like the late 80s early 90s style that's not quite as technical and a bit more manhandleable for 24 hours bring back the nascar add in a wrc car um Add in just a couple of other interesting racing cars from different series around the world. Chuck an Indy car in there. That would be a fantastic comparison. We'd be to see an Indy car versus an F1 car duking it out for 24 hours. It would put to bed so many sort of claims of, oh, my sport's more superior than yours. It's the same basic thing. It's a car on four wheels going round and round and round. But it would just be a fantastic thing to see. And I think this has opened the door for not only proving just how much fun endurance racing is and the fact that it has this lighter side to it, but also proving that NASCAR is a genuinely very interesting, very technical sort of aspect of motorsport and one to not be poo-pooed at. Equally, Jimmy Johnson is a very handsome man, and that is <laughs> that is worth putting on the record. I've seen him at, sorry, him at Goodwood last year. I'll try and call him if he's there again this year. He just looks just chiseled. <laughs> well, Especially when he's got sunglasses and a flat cap on. He, he just looks like sort of the American version of Peaky Blinders. Well, Jensen Button, I don't think he was meant to say it, but he has put on his Instagram post that that stock car is going to Goodwood. For Festival of Speed? Yes, I think so. Oh, I'm (laughs) ready to melt my eardrums. Oh, gimme, gimme, gimme. (laughs) It's the fact that I feel like we're going to sort of look back and think, do you remember the time they brought a NASCAR to Le Mans? Like, it's it's always going to be remembered. And for the right reasons as well. It's very much going to be one of those stories of, do you remember that time when? And the fact that it was able to compete is a testament to the work of the Garage 56 team, the fact that they were able to put that all together and get it done, and then a testament to the drivers for being able to actually make it work on track as well. It's just superb. So yeah, the Hendrix Motorsport Chevy V8-powered stock car going up against some of the most technically advanced GT and LMP cars on the planet and just going... Just need a V8 and a straight line, boys. It's superb. Anyway, 
Speaking of technology and technical direction, um, Alfa Romeo have announced that James Key will join their team as their new technical director from the 1st of September later this year. And this sees him reunited with former McLaren colleague Andreas Seidel, as the latter seems to be forming a super group of talented names, but now under different management. The rate and readiness of which people are leaving the working outfit suggests that possibly all is not well with their working world, and possibly the managerial style that's coming down from the top. However, However, on the face of it, looking at the technical state of McLaren, one has to ask what the worth was of bringing in a man who's been a big name in their backward steps over the past seasons. But Seidel, having left that environment, will know the conditions that Key was working under and has a previous appreciation of what he can do when handled properly. Key nonetheless has a big job on his hands of dragging a middling Alfa Romeo up the ranks, though he has the backing from his new boss and brings with him significant F1 experience. His experience dates back to 1998 when he joined the sport with Jordan. He stayed on when they became Midland, stepping up to technical director and continued on the Spiker and Force India banners before joining Sauber in 2012. It was only a short stint of around two years as he was snapped up by Toro Rosso. But this previous at uh, the Italo-Swiss outfit should prove useful as he'll seek to integrate himself quickly into the team when he starts in September. While at Toro Rosso, he was renowned for his strong leadership, heading the technical team and was efficient in making the most of a limited budget. Stepping up to a bigger project like McLaren in 2019 came at the right time in his career and gave him scope to develop and we saw some competent chassis from the team in the years that followed, though their current form does doesn't wholly reflect the efforts that he's put towards. Yeah, I think, first thing, I think you perhaps can't just judge him for his downfall of at McLaren. I think he's been in the industry a long time and perhaps like Danny Rick, he's good at his job. It just didn't work out at McLaren. And you always have to think whether he had too much on his hands to really excel because his one single role has now been cut into three different departments and then under them, new roles have been created to help in the management of it all. So was it just too much for one person? That's very much my theory is the fact that his plate was overlaid and the managerial style at McLaren doesn't seem to be one that's working for a lot of people, especially people that have come from teams where they've had a lot of freedom to do their own work, to lead technical units and progress the car in a manner that's sort of quite holistic and has a future goal to it. Whereas potentially you could say the current McLaren team very much focuses on short-term gains and that's very much been to its detriment. Though I don't expect that to be something that's been driven by the engineering and development teams. My reckoning is this has come from somewhere else. And that's why we've seen so many of these names leave because they can no longer run the technical side of the F1 team in a way that a technical F1 team should be. I won't point and name names, but I think it's easy to understand possibly who I'm referring to or where the issues might lie. Yeah, it's like they had a number of good people but just couldn't make it work. Yeah. It's, I mean, I guess for him, it's got to say something if your ex-team principal wants you back. Mm. It, they have an appreciation and understanding of the work you can do when you're given the support and they will know the environment that you've pre or you've, they've seen you previously flourishing. They will then sort of go, you're great. I can give you the environment that you want to work in. Come with me. I think that's what we're hopefully going to see with a sort of revived James Key over at what's going to become Audi. Essentially, when they move in, it's going to be the Audi Selber brand. And if they've got 
hopefully a very hands-off approach from Audi that just goes, if these are the people you want and the people that you reckon can put Audi at the top of F1, so be it. We will put the money where it needs to be. I don't think it needs to be very handheld or misdirected from that top board. Yeah, and you've got to think if, I mean, Audi are not coming into it in 2026, so they've got a couple of years to get into the role and they haven't really got, they're not going into a championship team and sort of trying to keep it going. Yeah, they've kind of got nothing to lose and whatever they sort of try in these next couple of years because Alfa Romeo Salva hasn't really been... Anywhere. Yeah. We just haven't been anywhere, really, for a good while. No. So it'll be interesting. Back at, like, the 1950s where Alfa Romeo was dominant. Yeah, who was Alfa Romeo's last great driver? Nino Farina? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it'll be an interesting one to see, but I think in the start of... September gives Key enough time to start making tweaks, changes, and adaptations to a 2024 car. So we could see small steps forward there. But again, it's going to be all relative to the engine and powertrain they're allowed to use from Ferrari as well. So there's a lot still to be seen from that move, but it's positive if you are going to be um, a fan of Lando Norris driving an Audi in Le Mans. Well, not in F1, I suppose. I was jumping ahead there and thinking, wouldn't it be great if Audi would then entered Le Mans and then somehow found a way of getting Lando Norris a seat at IndyCar for the 500? He could be the next driver to do the triple. (laughs) I mean, well, Audi dominated. They've, had, they've had previous, yeah. As anyone um, who's read your Instagram post will have known, yeah. Audi loved Le Mans and did very well at it. Um, speaking of German motoring brands, Mercedes tests tyres with Schumacher. In the time since his replacement at Haas, Roman Grosjean's fill-in has since run in two seasons of F1, scored points, battled with Verstappen, been booted from the role, joined Mercedes, and done the elusive Mercedes test that's been promised to the French pilot. Mick Schumacher recently enjoyed a test period with Mercedes, helping develop Pirelli's next generation of tyres. Times and results aren't truly relevant and haven't exactly been revealed either, but Mercedes' drive to use the boy is promising for him having a career that though that doesn't immediately equate to a seat. But I think, crucially, it's keeping him in F1 which is what you need and you know say somebody starts flailing at the end of the season Toto Wolf will be like well I have this driver who's only been out for a year uh, but he has also been driving our Mercedes this year why don't you give him a shot mm. I mean you've got to think where where would where could he fit in <laughs> This was something I was pondering earlier, and Red Bull are unlikely to take him, especially if they've got Danny Rick there, if they want to replace Perez. Ferrari aren't really going to go anywhere beyond Sainz and Leclerc for the moment. They're, they're trying to build on something that's different beyond their driver pool. So they're unlikely to also want him back as a former FDA driver. I think he's very much cut his ties with the group. Then you look at your next in line, Aston Martin aren't going anywhere. They've got Drogovic sat on the sidelines who's been doing exactly the same job and when in an F1 car proved to be ferociously fast when he did the preseason testing in place of Stroll. A lot closer to Alonso potentially than Stroll would have been. Then obviously next on the grid we've got Mercedes, maybe. But you're really hoping that like a Hamilton or a Russell starts having problems or starts looking elsewhere. Russell's signed on for another few years. Hamilton's 
essentially not going to be going anywhere for the time being. So next up on the list, Alpine. No, he's not really going to want to go there. He's sort of flirted with the idea previously, but they've got a lot of junior drivers in ranks below them. They could either go for a Victor Martins or uh, uh, Jack Doohan. Um then what have we got next? McLaren. Again, they've got so many drivers all over the spot in different classes they could possibly bring in. And again, they're not getting rid of Norris and Piastri. Both are on long-term contracts for at least another two years. Uh, Alpha Tauri, maybe. But then you've also got Iwasa and uh, Lawson to consider. And both of them are very quick at the moment in the season series they're in. Uh, Lawson especially, I think, is every time he races in Formula uh, Super Formula over in Japan, he inches closer to taking that De Vries seat. And it's unlikely Sonoda would go to open up both of them at the same time. Uh, Haas, unlikely to want him back. They just want safe hands in there so they can just keep money coming in. Alfa Romeo, again, have got Teo Porcher if they do want to replace Bottas. And Joe is really outperforming the Finn. He's not going anywhere anytime soon. Now he's proven his worth. Um, and that just leaves Williams, who aren't going to be getting rid of Alex Albon anytime soon because he's the only one that can somehow get points out of that thing. And then that leaves Sargent, who they're reportedly looking at signing for another year. So it's not great if you're Mick Schumacher, but he's still earning a living. Yeah, it's tough at the minute. I think, like you said, the only really options he's got is maybe Alpha Tari or maybe, but I doubt it, Williams. But yeah. Because Williams has obviously got the ties with Mercedes. That they could sort of shoehorn him in that way. I mean, McLaren, yeah. I reckon, is a possibility if Norris gets really bored of the car, but then he's throwing himself at risk of moving out of the sport and waiting for that chance to come at the essentially the reformed Audi Salbo unit. And that's a big gamble for him to take. I think he'd much rather just sort of wait it out borrowing Max Verstappen's jet ski for weekend trips and just sort of living his best life in a slightly slow McLaren. So it's it's unfortunate. And I was reading up on the role, actually. Esteban Ocon, when he was in the role Mick Schumacher now has, um, said that there were points where he was getting 45 minutes of sleep. So he'd be up all night doing factory setup stuff, literally running the sim rig, doing race day setups and then flying out to the race if it was nearby to go and sort of be a part of the race team for that weekend, offering tips and pointers through the race. And he said, you're doing that on 45 minutes sleep. Plus if you get to sleep in the plane over, it's an intense, intense role. And the fact that Mercedes are singing Schumacher's praises for being able to pull it off is a testament to his development as a driver personally in that very short scope of time since leaving Haas. So I think it's proven that he needed the right environment and also that there is a good driver in there. It just needs a way of being found. Unless um, Audi decide they want a German driver. Yeah, they really might do, in which case, not out of the question, but again, you're floating around until 2026. That's another... Two, two and a half seasons essentially from where we sit now of F1 to sit on the sidelines and wait. Ocon got very lucky that he only sat on the sidelines at Mercedes for a year after 2018 then came back in in 2020, wasn't he? He made his return, he set out for most of 2019 yeah. then came back with what was Renault at that point in time to partner Daniel Ricciardo. So yeah, I think Ocon was very lucky where he was because there was no other talent coming out the top of F2 at that point either. But then as well... Who would have thought Hulkenberg would get back in? We all knew Hulkenberg was a very good driver and he just sort of deserved to be back in F1. We never really thought it would happen. Yeah. 
it was an odd one, but equally he was the only viable option that Hass could get their mitts on for a decent price last minute that also wasn't going to completely total the car every time he got in it, which Mick Schumacher had by that point got the unfortunate reputation for. So it's it's mixed, really. Um, speaking of tyres, though, which is what we sort of started this point on, Bridgestone are reportedly putting together a tender for F1 tyres in 2025. So Pirelli is now having to work to reorganise and structure a competitive plan for the sports tyres. And for once, is actually going to have to fight to prove that it should remain as the tyre provider for the sport, which is interesting. Um, obviously, we saw a lot of Michelin tyres being... Was it Michelin being run at Le Mans, mostly? Yes. Yeah, because I think I vaguely recall seeing the Bendham there, the Michelin man. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting to see Bridgestone making a possible reappearance. But, of course, they will have some data they can pinch from Firestone, their American counterparts, who make high-speed single-seater tyres for IndyCar. So... They might be better lined up for this than people give them credit. They do. Did Formula E switch over from Michelin to Bridgestone as well, just uh, this year? Mm, oh, I can't remember what Formula E are running, but it's not very good tyres at the moment. Formula E twenty twenty three. I know they've no longer got Michelin. They run Hankook tyres. Uh, which. Uh, <laughs> Mixed. I've spoken to people from inside the FE world. Um, people are not a fan of those tyres. They do They do not provide the grip or the support that the cars demand. And bear in mind how heavy the FE cars are as well. That's a lot of force to be put through those tyres and they're just not capable of keeping up with it, especially on the rough street circuits that Formula E utilises. So I wouldn't really want to see Hankook making a bid for F1 stuff, but Bridgestone, I reckon, could do a good job of it. And equally, bear in mind, Bridgestone were the reason why we had those problems at the 2005 US Grand Prix, where we saw six cars line up because Bridgestone knew what the Indy circuit was like because they used the Firestone data because it's their sister company. That was how Ferrari was one of the like three teams that pulled up onto the grid. Everyone else went, nah, we haven't got tyres for it, mate. I think... Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what F1 really do with this because obviously half the reason we only have Pirelli because no one else wanted to do it really and when we had two tire manufacturers it didn't really work the last time in F- f1 did it because a manufacturer would make their tire more suitable for one specific team aka ferrari and the yep. rest of them just fit around it so is it going to be up to like the discretion of the teams who could, who they choose and kind of what's the consequences of that do you know do the teams pay for the tyres out of the cost cap? Yeah, they, they pay for the tyres, yeah. Or will they... So could it be a case of... Who offers the say, cheapest tyres? Yeah. yeah, F1 say, well, um, let's, you know, Pirelli and Bridgestone battle it out, let the teams pick. The teams are going to go, well, let's have... Maybe let's have the cheapest tyre. Because mm, that frees or, up cost for extra parts development through the year and so on. I was trying to think whether we don't have any single-seater racing, do we, that uses two tyre manufacturers at the same time. It's all very much been, you have one. Off the top of my head, I don't think there is one. Yeah, I think it's all sort of single-make tyres that sort of appear in these 
classes. And again, it's because there's no easy way of solving the problem of, well, how would you have two do it? Um, if you do know of a racing series that has two or more tyre providers, get in touch with us. Um, social media is all in the link for the Insta podcast and the YouTube channel. Um, let us know on the socials which racing series has more than one tyre provider. Be interesting to know and equally see how they manage to sort of balance out who has what for it. Um, I guess um, as well, if I mean, if it has to be that only we only have one tyre manufacturer and uh, F1 stick to Pirelli, at least Bridgestone could kind of be like, well, Formula E, we can make a Formula One tyre. How about, yeah. you know, look at us. If, if Mango's not uh, being the greatest of tyre manufacturers, then, I mean, it is completely sort of, it's very different. Formula E don't have pit stops to change their tyres or anything yeah. like that. They're sort of almost these all-weather Mm, it's a it's a cut tread tire as well i, th- I believe for yeah. formula e. yeah it's very different but we'll have to see what happens with that one um it's very much an unknown unlike uh the next piece of news which is something we've been touting for sort of feels like a year now kyle army won't be replacing spa just yet uh, South African Russian links have seen the sport turn away from the African nation's circuit and the possible return of Formula One to the continent after the last racing there in 1993 has been sort of thrown away, really. Um, Formula One doesn't like the look of South Africa having links and ties with Russia, which is very much a sort of persona non grata at this point in time. Um, so they've gone, yeah, we won't be appearing at Kyle Army for a little while. Um, so Spa remains, which is great. I like Spa. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I really like Spa as a circuit. It is a fantastic ribbon of tarmac and provides some beautiful racing action. I would have liked to have seen Kyle Army made a return. I still don't think I could justify it being at the expense of Spa. Yeah, I absolutely love Spa. It's my dream to go and watch a race at Spa. And but I also think I know we've raced in South Africa in the past, but if South Africa isn't an option, I don't think that everyone should go, oh, well, let's just stop looking at air races in Africa then if we can't have South Africa. You know, okay, it takes a while to build an FIA status track, or, but I definitely think we can look elsewhere. You know, even someone like somewhere like Senegal, for instance, okay, hosted each streamy, that's incredibly different i think they use sort of the beaches mm. but they also hosted the latest africa cup of nations so they can host big big events they've got the pedigree to do it so just let's look elsewhere yeah africa despite what many americans think is not one big country it is a continent comprised of about like 30 other countries possibly not that many um I haven't done yeah. geography in a while um but yeah, there is a lot of other nations there that are financially stable enough, I would like to think, that could get away with hosting a Formula One event or would possibly benefit from hosting a decent Formula One event. So it'd be interesting to see if there's continued interest in an African Grand Prix, to use such a phrase, and where it would lead us. Um, although I won't leave that as my big question. My big question for you, Ellie May, is we've now seen all three elements of motorsports triple crown if you could enter one of them 
which would you enter? You're given a decent enough car, a chance of winning. You're obviously a decent enough driver, theoretically, to do it. Which one are you entering? Which one do you want to be stood on the podium for and celebrating? Come on. That's what I was thinking earlier today. I was like, yeah, Monaco's great. I'd like to do it for the pomp and ceremony. But having watched the emotion from that Ferrari pit garage as yeah. Car 51 comes across the line... I think that the hard work and effort that goes through pulling off a little more win would be the one you want to experience. I loved IndyCar this year. The Indy 500 was superb. It was a bit crazy towards the end, but the celebration for Joseph Newgarden coming through, the thirsty threes, absolute triumphing. And then the milk on the podium, I think is cool. It's unique. It's It'd be great to experience. But of that, those three, I think it'd have to be Le Mans. It's just such a vibe. Uh, yeah, I think out of them all, that's got to be the most rewarding. It's so difficult and you're going to be so tired at the end. But you, that's, that's where the raw emotion comes from. If yeah. you're so tired, you can't mask it anymore. You can't hide it anymore. You're just so goddamn happy. And yeah, yeah I, I would love to love to give that a shot and give it a go. Well, there's two of us. We should really a third person. Yeah. We'll find one of the girls from um, Valkyrie Racing. I'm sure one of them wants to give it a shot. Yeah. Let's anyway, do it. <laughs> let's do it. You've got to get a driving license first, let alone a racing. Oh, well. Let's just go win Le Mans. We'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Until then, though, it's time to look ahead to the Canadian Grand Prix and, crucially, what weather we can expect. Thursday is said to be peppered with showers throughout the day, meaning any tech walks and preliminary track investigations could be wet. Equally, it's likely to reset the racing surface. Friday is much the same, but not likely to be as warm, so wet patches are likely to linger for longer. Uh, try saying that one after four shandies. Uh, Saturday sees the temperatures climb higher again to 25 degrees Celsius, but no rain is forecast at the moment. And Sunday isn't going to be as warm, around 23 degrees Celsius, but crucially, it's looking dry. With warm conditions on the Saturday, qualifying could be competitive with a track that will rubber in a lot as the sessions pass. So setting a good bank lap and then a second push lap will be valuable. The cooler Sunday should alleviate some worries about tyre degradation and open up a bit of diversity in the strategies that teams employ. I can't remember the degradation on the circuit. Let me check the Pirelli notes. This low, one. isn't it? Uh, relatively low asphalt abrasion they've got written down, but it is high track evolution. So obviously if we see um, a lot of that evolution with a warm track on the Saturday, qualifying could vary hugely from the times we see drivers set in Q1 to those who get into the top 10 shootout of Q3. So which on-track battles should we look out for? A comfortable third of the way into the season or so, the running order of a weekend would conventionally be easy to ascertain, but the significant upgrades brought by Mercedes and some tweaks from Ferrari have thrown some questions onto the field just behind Red Bull. Red Bull are undoubtedly the fastest car of the season, and unless they've made a change to the car that's ruined Adrian's work, they will certainly have a step on the podium crossed off. Aston Martin will need a good qualifying standard chance of battling a reinvigorated Mercedes, though the actual pace of the W14 isn't yet clear after a shaken-up Spanish Grand Prix revealed little of its pace in comparison. Ferrari could also be in the fight against Brackley and Silverstone, but lack the in-corner pace of the Bulls and can't quite hang with them on the straights. Essentially, picking the P2, P3, P4 teams will be a tricky one. 
P5 is looking more and more likely to be Alpine. Two strong races with good points haul from each has opened their lead over McLaren and alleviated the pressure on their drivers, allowing them to work more confidently and push the envelope a little more. Haas, Alpha Tauri, Alpha Romeo could all be linked in tight battle for the final point, um, though the high demands of circuit Gilles Villeneuve could expose significant flaws in their cars. If Joe has a good qualifying, we could see him ahead of Sonoda and De Vries, though the former of the Fiennes outfit could continue to challenge for a point as he has been so far this season. Williams, a long way back in the development race, you really have to check out their Bogo spec floor. Like it is one flush surface <laughs> compared to the detail that's gone into like the Mercedes, the Ferrari, and the Red Bull. Um, then Williams will be lucky to achieve much this weekend, where their lack of pace and cornering ability will hamper any chance of running close to the pack. Don't be surprised if we see Sargent down two laps on Max early on. So knowing that we'll rumble into our predictions. And we haven't binned him off completely. We've still got Timo's predictions written down in front of us. And his pole position is Max Verstappen. Ellie May, you've got for the same. Exactly the same. Uh, unless it rains. Although it did rain last year, didn't it? And he still got pole. Yeah. So. But he had Alonso in P2. He did. Which is where I reckon that Alonso might be able to inch it one step further this year and get that pole position. Could go either way, I reckon. It really depends on how good that qualifying is. But I reckon Alonso is cunning enough to be able to make a changing track uh, work in his favour. So after however many laps the Grand Prix is, it is 70 laps around Circuit Gilles What will the podium be? Timo is still sticking with his uh, just simply copy the last race thing. Verstappen, Hamilton, Russell is his prediction fairly likely I think he's got high odds of this one paying off actually now we've got the two Mercedes up there but that's really putting a lot of hope on the W14 being good enough uh, Ellie May you've gone the same but different yes I've gone for Verstappen win signs in second I don't know why perhaps it's the delusion of Ferrari winning at Le Mans or just I've been so tired when I like today, when I've made these predictions, the, and I've been tired all day until we started talking about Le Mans, especially the NASCAR, and I started getting really excited. And now I'm sort of awake. So if you are tired, all you need to do is talk about a NASCAR at Le Mans, and it kind of gets you excited. Um, yeah, signs in second, and then Hamilton in in third. That's not an unlikely prediction, and I think it would be an interesting one to see. Certainly, three different constructors up there. Um, I've also gone for the same thing, three different constructors, Verstappen winning. Um, I've gone for Alonso second place and Leclerc third. I reckon Leclerc, after attending Le Mans, will be sort of jazzed up by the idea that, yeah, maybe Ferrari can mean something on a race car and will sort of really get the car into a window that works and get something from it. I think that would be an interesting one to see. We've all gone very different, though, with fastest laps. I've gone for Fernando Alonso, mainly because I just haven't put Aston Martin in in my podium, but I thought... Could if they're somewhere. not podiuming, they will probably sort of be challenging for the fastest lap with the last yeah. eight-minute sort of soft tyre pit stop. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, Timo has taken Carlos Sainz and said he might have the fastest lap, and I've gone for Pierre Gasly. Yeah, I, I was going to go for Pierre Gasly, and then I saw that you'd put it and thought, ah. Uh, be different. <laughs> 
He's on a decent run of form at the moment. And I reckon that he can extract the pace from the car around Gilles Villeneuve. I reckon it's got the sort of balance that's needed to work those corners through sort of sector two and into sector three really nicely. Well, he got, at some point last uh, week, he did get fastest lap. It got taken off of him because it was sort of mid-race, but he did get it. Because I did put Pierre Gasly as my fastest lap last week. And I was like, yeah, technically I was kind of right. It just wasn't the one at the end. Yeah, that is very true. Um, so we've obviously got our fastest laps. But what about our wild predictions? Timo's gone for Alex Albon top eight Grand Prix finish. Which is interestingly worded. And I'm sure it gives him scope somewhere in his mind to argue that one when the when it does not play his way. Um, Ellie May, you've gone for very straight down the line, Stroll, top five. Well, I was, is it? Because he's only got one top five finish. I mean, as, as the way of writing it, it's quite clear cut. I, whether or not it's going to happen is clear cut is uh, yet to be decided. Yeah, you because know, I thought, is that too safe? Because I thought, you know, I usually like to kind of do some sort of theme to if, it, if it's a driver's home race and I haven't put Stroll anywhere else and I thought I'll put him in a top five and then I sort of looked at looked at where he's finished this season and yeah he's only got the one top four which was sort of Australia and obviously that was a that was a crazy a race chaotic. yeah and I thought if Mercedes are up there as well mm. it makes it harder for that top five so I can see it being a challenge for him to get there, so I'll accept it. It's certainly wild. I've gone for Sonoda top seven because he's been flirting around the bottom end of the points, but I can just see him potentially having a good run here that just sort of catapults him up. Like there'll be a pit strategy that sees him running P4 for a while and he'll lose places through a spread out field to come home P7 or something. I reckon that's that's something we could see from Sonoda, and I'd love that to happen. I'd love it too. Yeah. Well, that pretty much brings us to the end of uh, this week's episode. That's all we've really got time for, all we've really got to cover. Um, our congratulations, of course, go to Giovinazzi, Pierre Guidi, and uh, the other fella from Ferrari. What's his name? Uh, James Calado. Can't believe I've got it. Just I'm doing the wrap up um, uh, on their Le Mans win in the Ferrari hypercar. And of course, we'll be back reviewing the Canadian Grand Prix in a I would say about a week's time, it'll be about four days' time by the time I've edited this and got it out. Um, so make sure you've liked, subscribed, and got notifications turned on to not miss anything. Timo can be found on Is It Fast, on the Curbs, the Nitro RX podcast, Paddock Sorority, and Instagram. Ellie May, where can the people find you? Uh, you can find me doing the graphics for the Instagram page. I'll also have out this week the Canadian uh, track guide. Uh, we've also got we, um, we've got a fresh TikTok out. we do have a fresh TikTok out and an Instagram reel out of London Concourse some photos of it as well and um, if you have just watched Le Mans for the first time or you want to know a little more about the history then I've collated some of Le Mans most defining moments and put them on our Instagram page as well so you can check them out too no mean feat considering that's a hundred years of crazy racing action combined onto just 10 Instagram slides. It's quite neatly done if I do say so. Thank you. It was quite hard to do. There are there are lots that I've missed out that I would have loved to put in, sort of, you know, like Johnny Herbert um not making it to the podium because he's 
passed out coming out of the car and you know Hulkenberg and Le Mans um and Alonso winning at Le Mans as well I've missed out but you can't mm. have it all you simply cannot um but there we go there's plenty of that to read up on and I can be found on Instagram and Twitter as at Jesse on cars and you can find me writing weekly for Classic Car Weekly the latest issue is out and it's our sports car special edition with my write-up from when I went to Classic Rallying and crucially one so uh worth picking up and giving that a read ahead of the Canadian Grand Prix which is all this weekend until we're back to review it have a fantastic time and we'll see you shortly